Welcome to The 17 Podcast. I'm Kate Hutchinson. This podcast is themed around the UN's 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. These 17 SDGs represent a plan to protect the future of the planet. Our usual episode format is to focus on one single SDG, but this episode is a bit different. It's a pioneer episode where we feature people who are the authorities, innovators and leaders in the world of sustainability. In this episode, we hear from one of sustainability's founding fathers, author John L. Kington. Stop baby boomers, and I'm, I'm 74, so I'm very much part of that generation, thinking they've done their bit, no they haven't, and stop them believing that they can now retire in comfort and leave it to others. We also speak to fair trade pioneer and co-founder of Green and Black Chocolate, Joe Fairley. And for fair trade, you know, for me, that's just, it's just a no-brainer. In the developed world, we need to respect the livelihoods and the work that people put in in the developing world for money that we simply couldn't live on. But first, here's what happened when I talked to global carbon footprint expert, Mike Bernersley. Mike is a professor and a fellow of the Institute for Social Futures at Lancaster University and a best-selling author. His books include How Bad Are Bananas, The Burning Question and There Is No Planet B. Mike, what first got you involved in sustainability? Well, crumbs, where do you start? I mean, I think, you know, I think as I grew up, it was always something that was, you know, of interest. But I remember at university, I remember a very difficult time coming to the end of my degree because all the standard things that most people were going off and doing were just really unappealing. And I wanted to do something which I didn't have the words for it at the time, but now I would say, oh, I want to work on sustainability, I think. So in one form or another. So I suppose, you know, right from the beginning in a way, but it was a very wandering route before I found myself working on climate change, maybe coming on for 20 years ago. What is your opinion on the UN Sustainable Development Goals? I think they have given us, you know, a common language. And I think in that sense, they have been very, very useful. I don't think there is any one single definitive truth about the best way of looking at all this stuff. And there are one or two that maybe I'd take, we could discuss a little bit. So they're not perfect. And I think the, the 17 of them is a very big number. But certainly, they're a useful framework and they provide a common language. So when it comes to protecting the future of our planet, the clock is ticking. Are you hopeful we're going to be able to make the progress that we need, or are you worried? Well, anyone who's not worried has got their head in the sand. We are facing a challenge of a type that we have never known. Humanity has never known this challenge before. We are currently accelerating into a polycrisis. It's pretty clear that if we don't take very urgent action, we're going to experience a very bad time. And I'm talking absolutely, definitely within my lifetime. It could be in the next decade. We just haven't got a clue. So it still looks likely, or at least possible, that if we take really strong action now, we could, broadly speaking, get away with it and possibly even live better than ever. But anybody who carries on as if it's business as usual is just in cuckoo land. Let's dive into your areas of expertise um, that make you a sustainability pioneer, Mike. You're an expert on carbon footprints. I think we've all got the message that flying on planes is bad and eating red meat is bad. And What's the next level up of understanding about carbon footprints that you would like people to have? First of all, I want to say that it's usually not about taking extreme positions. So, you know, it's true that we need to fly less, 
but it's still actually okay to fly still for a really good reason. It's true that we need to dramatically reduce our meat and dairy consumption, which doesn't actually mean none. Uh, so, But it's also true that whilst we need to have a good enough understanding of how carbon works in the world, what things have big and small carbon footprints, we need to understand that in terms of the kind of whole global economy, but we need to understand it in terms of our personal lifestyles as well, in a, you know, in a good enough, rough kind of way. It's also true that that on its own is not enough to bring about any change. So the real question is, what will it take for humans to wake up, to get on the case and start taking the action that we need to? The term net zero gets used a lot by many companies now in their marketing. They are trying to achieve it by a certain date or working towards it. You understand supply chain carbon modelling better than anyone. Is net zero helpful as a concept? I think net zero was helpful up to a point as a concept and these days it can get in the way. It's helpful as a concept at the global level, the world needs to do that. It's somewhat helpful as a concept for the UK, but we don't include all the things that we should. So we should also be including all our embodied trade and so on. And then, and then it would be somewhat useful as a concept. But then it starts to have decreasing usefulness for businesses and more local areas. So to give an example, we've worked with all the UK's national parks to set them up with carbon targets. We put them all on the same level of ambition, which we think is 1.5 degree compatible. One of the parks ends up with a, a net zero date of 2024, and one of the parks end up, ends up with a net zero date of 2070. And it's all a function of the circumstances that they're in and the opportunities that they've got. And for businesses, it's exactly the same story. So the way businesses should think about climate is they should be saying, right, given the nature of our business, what are our responsibilities? And the first and foremost responsibility is to make sure that the goods and services that you're offering are helping to enable transition to a better future in one way or another. And if that's not the case, then you need to change it. And the critical question is, for every business to ask, is if the world made it, started making a transition towards sustainability, would that be an opportunity or a threat for us? And if it's not a net opportunity, then you urgently need to change the business model. So that's the priority. After that, there is also, it's also very important to be managing your carbon in a way that is 1.5 compatible. But there's really no, no substitute for sorting out the business model. So you've done a lot of work on sustainable food systems. How do we get to a point where the world is fed in a sustainable and fair way? Well, there's a lot of complexity in the food system, but for all that complexity, there are some things that are just absolutely crystal clear and the science is unambiguous. And the biggest and most important of those is that we need to reduce by a long way the amount of meat and dairy in our diet. And that is true whether you care about climate change or biodiversity or feeding the world's population. It's just unambiguous on that one. I know that's a sensitive topic for some people, but actually it's an opportunity for everybody. It's an economic opportunity because it's so much more efficient to grow plant-based nutrition than to grow plants and then feed them to animals and try and eat the animals. And it's a health opportunity as well these days. So... You know, if we get it right, we can have more people working the land, earning better livelihoods, creating better nutrition, 
and supporting our biodiversity in a way that we've never had before whilst dealing with climate change. What's not to like about that? I read a really interesting stat around um, technology and the cloud and how the cloud has the same carbon footprint now as the airline industry. You know, we know that air travel is bad. We know that burning fossil fuels is bad, but we forget about the impact of tech and ICT. So what do we need to know? Well, first of all, I'm going to dispute the the stats a little bit because I think air travel is at least twice as impactful as most people understand because we hear this uh, statistic that it's 2 or 3% of the world's carbon footprint and actually that's ignoring high altitude factors which we absolutely should take into account. And if uh, if we adopt a... If we look at the climate impact of aviation over a 100-year period, then the high altitude factors roughly double its impact but if you're interested in the impact over a shorter time period then the high altitude factors have a much more important impact than that so aviation's a bigger deal than people say and i suspect that the cloud is actually a slightly smaller deal <laughs> according to my analysis than than the statistic you've just read out i think the the total carbon footprint of all of ict including all the hardware and the cloud and the networks and even the tv the TVs that we use, uh, because that's also part of the old-fashioned part of ICT, if you like, it comes in at something around, possibly as a best estimate, maybe 4% of uh, the world's carbon footprint. So it's significant, but that's not a disaster. The real question is, what is the effect that ICT has on the carbon footprint of the rest of the global economy? Because it helps us do everything more efficiently. But unfortunately, at the moment, The more efficient we get at anything, the more we do of it. And it's just leading to greater and greater impacts. And to summarise where that takes us to, what we need to do is leave the fossil fuel in the ground. And then what ICT will do for us is it will enable us to live better without having more impacts. You've written best-selling books about sustainability. What's the key to getting the message across to people for whom yet it's not a priority? I think we have to just say it like it is. I, sometimes people say that you, you should water it down a little bit so the message is acceptable. Sometimes people even say that you should exaggerate it a bit. And I, I don't think either of those things are helpful. I think you should say it like it is, as clearly and accurately as you see it. And then to make things, messages acceptable, I think it's important to uh, talk about realistic hope so I don't try and say that we'll all be fine if we just do a few little things. That's not the case. Uh, it's not even the case that we're definitely going to get through this. We might be in for a very bad time, whatever we do about it, because we've left it so late. I think I should be honest about where we're at, which is that there's everything to play for. And uh, I try and be respectful with people, and I try and be cheerful if that's possible. But, I mean, we should be, we should be scared. We always end each podcast episode with a start and a stop question. People listening want to be part of the solution. So when it comes to sustainability, what is the one thing that they can stop doing and what is the one thing that they can start doing? Well, I'm always looking at the things that are really going to have the most leverage on creating the conditions under which we can get on top of the climate crisis. So the answer I'm going to give is not such a direct answer as maybe you might be expecting. Well, one thing you should stop doing is you should stop ever voting for a politician who isn't careful with the truth. And one thing you should start doing is you should be very, very discerning about 
all politicians and about all your sources of media and ask yourself extremely careful questions about what your basis is for trusting that particular source of information to give you the best view of reality that it possibly can. And of course, if you're not comfortable with the answer, you get switch. Mike, that's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast and thank you for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. You're listening to The 17 Podcast and this is a Pioneers episode where we talk to inspirational people in sustainability. Jo Fairley played a crucial role in the fair trade movement through her work with chocolate company Green and Blacks. She also changed the game in terms of sustainable business practice. Here's what happened when the 17 host, Lala Haloum, spoke to her. Jo, welcome to the 17. To start the conversation, I'd love to know what does responsible consumption mean to you? Responsible consumption to me means not over-consuming, buying what you need, wasting as little as possible, making things last as long as they possibly can, and also looking at where things come from. So for me, the priorities would be buying organic or something from regeneratively farmed sources, and wherever possible, buying fair trade, because that really does have an impact on the communities that you buy from. You mentioned fair trade and you mentioned organic. Why is that so important to your work at Green and Blacks? They were the founding principles of, of, of the business. And yeah. to be honest, we didn't think we were doing anything extraordinary. That Those principles really chimed with Craig's and my background. I mean, I, you know, I always say that I got my values from watching Blue Peter when I was a kid. And he was an organic, macrobiotic, restaurateur, food business pioneer. And so we just did what came naturally. And it wasn't until years later that we looked back and saw that we really had helped to kind of establish a blueprint for sustainable business. But the reason those two things matter so much to me is that with organic, it is truly the best way, not just to preserve biodiversity, but also to put back into the soil because we are losing topsoil at a absolutely, you know, catastrophic rate. There are some parts of the world that, you know, only really have a few harvests left. And the principle of organic agriculture is to always put back into the soil, not just to take, take, take. So it's not only about not polluting rivers or not killing weeds or not poisoning wildlife and birds, etc. It's also about that all-important soil. And I'm really glad that people are starting to talk about that now. And for fair trade, you know, for me, that's just, it's just a no-brainer. In the developed world, we need to respect the livelihoods and the work that people put in in the developing world for money that we simply couldn't live on, even even if it's fair trade, you know, we're not giving them £30,000 a year salaries. But the increased income from fair trade and the long-term relationships that are forged through fair trade really enable those communities to build a better life for themselves. And I've seen it in action and I know it works. And so for me, if there's a choice in a cafe, fair trade coffee, non-fair trade coffee, of course, because every banana, every every fair trade cotton garment, every cup of tea actually makes a difference to somebody's life. It is, as you say, it's not revolutionary. It almost is common sense and just much needed. So that's really interesting that you remark on that. Looking forward now at the halfway point to 2030, what's driving change in companies? I believe that it is being driven by the kind of talent that they want to take on board. Yeah. Because 83% of millennials want to work for an organisation, this is according to Forbes magazine, 
which enables them to contribute on some kind of social or environmental level. And if you want to tap into the talent pool, you have got to take those issues on board. But to be honest, I never care if a business goes down a sort of CSR, ESG route for cynical reasons because they need something in the company report that looks good or because of peer pressure. Because actually, at the end of the day, the effect is the same. You know, they actually start to make changes within their organisation that engage the staff. People love getting out of bed in the morning and going to work for a company that is doing more than just making money. And so actually taking on those issues starts to change the DNA of an organisation. And so it it kind of snowballs, actually. I think it is a complete no-brainer that every company has to look at the issues of consumption, production, distribution, logistics, etc. But what I would do is cut people a bit of slack because the perfect is the enemy of the good. And I think that sometimes organisations are scared to embark on this journey and they're scared to talk about embarking on it because they're not perfect. But actually, this is a journey of a thousand miles that begins with a single step. You know, people are worried about being accused of greenwashing or whatever, but I think it's about how you communicate those steps with your workforce, with your customers, with your suppliers, etc., And acknowledge that, you know, nobody's perfect to begin with, but say, we're doing this, this is where we'd like to be, but join us on our journey. And this is what we've achieved so far. So actually, quite often, I find that there is more going on than people are talking about, but they're just worried about sticking their head above the parapet. So Joe, as a trailblazer, what was the landscape like when you began? It was very different when we launched Green Mm -hmm. Blacks. People thought we were mad. I mean, Craig always, who's been in the organic food business since 1967, says you can always tell the pioneers because they're the ones with the arrows in their backs. But it was so unusual. I was very lucky to have a mentor in Anita Roddick, who was founder of The Body Shop, who, of course, was also a pioneer. And she signed me up for a networking organisation that she belonged to called Social Venture Network. And so we would go off several times a year and kind of have a huddle of businesses that were trying to do good through doing business. So we would be up a mountain in Italy or we might be in Boston or whatever. And it was people like Anita and Gordon Roddick, Gary Hirschberg, who was the founder of a company called Stonyfield Farms Yogurt in the States, which he went on to sell to Danone. And these two very crazy guys called Ben and Jerry, who were (laughs) the ice cream makers. And we literally were like a support group for each other because... In the wider world, people thought we were nuts. They couldn't understand a lot of what we were talking about. We got there in the end. But that mutual support, because we were doing something so unusual, was really important. So, you know, when I look around today, those issues are mainstream. It's not unusual for companies to embrace values like like the ones that we had or Body Shop had or Stonyfield Farm or Ben & Jerry's had. Um, But back then it was it was we were out in the wilderness. And so I am hugely encouraged to look around that and see that many of those issues have just become a way of life. So Joe, finally, at the individual level, if you could ask everyone listening today to stop doing one thing and to start doing one thing right now, today, what would that be? The first thing I would suggest that they do is stop overbuying food so stop the Saturday shop where you just go into the supermarket and do a shop for a fictitious week that 
might not happen because on Tuesday you might go to the pub for dinner or on Wednesday a friend invites you over. And so by the following Saturday that comes around, you're having to throw away food that is really past its best. Although I would also say that there are some very good books around on how to deal with your leftovers, which I would also encourage people to buy. So not throwing away food is really important because... All of the work that has gone into producing that is just, it's the most terrible waste. The thing I would encourage people to start doing is something that I'm having a bit of fun with, which is that a report came out about the massive overconsumption of fashion. And the only way that we can possibly hope to get to 1.5 degree by 2030 is basically to stop buying new clothes at the pace that we are and limit ourselves to a maximum of five new garments or accessories a year. So I decided that in 2023, I was going to try and do that. Wow. And it has made shopping so much more interesting because every time I look at something, I'm going, do I love that enough for it to be one of my five? More intentional. It's much more intentional. Therefore, everything I buy is more special and I enjoy it more. And it doesn't mean that I've stopped buying clothes, but I am going to charity shops again more. I am using Vinted. I am going to boot fairs and I am shopping my own wardrobe and putting together things that I already own, but I'm looking at with a different light. And I'm definitely not using shopping as a kind of way to cheer myself up when I'm feeling miserable. So I'm thoroughly enjoying the five a year. And, you know, I think it should become like your five a day. Joe, thank you so much for being our guest on the 17 podcast today. Thank you for having me. Our final sustainability pioneer in this episode of The 17 is John Elkington. John is a world authority on sustainability and was one of the first authors to publish books on the subject. I got the chance to speak to John at Yorkshire Sustainability Week 2023. John, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Kate, and thank you. So John is often described as the godfather of sustainability. He is a world authority on corporate responsibility and sustainable capitalism, a best-selling author and a serial entrepreneur. Currently, he is founding partner of Volans. His latest book is Green Swans, The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism. John, what first got you involved in sustainability? I, I grew up in an Air Force family, so we travelled a lot. And when I was about five or six, we were in Northern Ireland uh, for a, a couple of years. And we uh, lived on a farm. And one night I went home from a, a fairly routine supper with a farm labourer and his family, which I used to love. Uh, and I would go once a week. And it was completely moonless. It was completely dark. And I was walking across these fields on my own. And um, I suddenly found myself completely surrounded by tens of thousands of what I discovered were baby eels migrating. It's something they do when conditions are wrong uh, for them. And I had one of these sort of extraordinary moments, you know, age six, what is going on? And um, put my fingers down and these things were crawling between my fingers. And I suddenly had this combination of absolute shock and absolute sense of connection that's actually never left me. Even then I knew about the Sargasso Sea and some elements of the migratory cycle. And then from that point on, I track it back. It's very easy to make up a story as you go along. But I since discovered a poacher's autobiography where he describes exactly the same thing happening to him. Again, on a moonless night, but this time in the Somerset level. So I think that's where it began. But I just was extremely lucky to grow up with the global environmental movement. 
Sustainability is a big thing now, hmm. but you were there first. You were one of the first people to really write about it back in the 80s and 90s. So how has the scene changed between then and now? Well, firstly, hugely. And, and, and we set up a company in 1987 called Sustainability, and we've absolutely literally had to spell the word for years, I mean, four or five years, because people had simply never heard it. And there was the Brundtland Commission report uh, that came out that same year, 1987. But some benighted academic, I think at Aberdeen University, did a word search uh, through the Brundtland uh, report uh, years later and did, couldn't find the word sustainability anywhere in there. I can only find one prior reference used in this sense, and that was a French-Canadian priest back in the 19, early 1970s. So it was somewhat novel. People talked about sustainable. They talked about sustainable development. Now, the, to your question, I was at the Hay Festival uh, early this year. I was at the Chelsea Flower Show. I, and every third or fourth word people now use is sustainability. And you go anywhere in the business world and, you know, it's sustainable this and sustainable that. And you could say, well, now we've succeeded. We've got people to speak the language. But I think that's only just scratching the surface. It's the first stage of getting people aware of the fact that there is a challenge and there are opportunities which they need to embrace. To your question, on the face of it, progress has been grindingly slow. I mean, it's taken us over 30 years to get to the point where people know the word uh, and, and use it without thinking. But that's the problem. They don't think yet. And, and that's what we now need, I think, to help them do. So what do you think about the UN's Sustainable Development Goals? Do you want the honest answer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're, they're, they're fantastic. It's great that they exist. I think they're, they're a result of a, an extraordinary complex and, and, and energetic process that was multi-stakeholder before that was a thing in a way. So I, I, and I think the colourful design of the goals is, is smashing. But uh, I was saying to someone earlier on today, I, I, I can remember three things, which is why I came up with a triple bottom line. I can sort of stretch to five things. But by the time you get to 17, don't set me an exam. I don't know what 11 is. I don't know what 17 is. But I think they have been a, a very useful framework uh, for people who are trying to make challenging decisions, particularly in business. I suppose the one thing that worries me about them is that they're generally seen as a shopping list in the sense that you're walking along a shelf and you'll take five and you'll take eight and you'll take perhaps a little bit of 11. So now we're doing it. And that the whole point about the goals, as you well know, is that they are trying to be a systemic uh, response to a systemic crisis. And people are not yet properly thinking about them in that way. At least that's my sense. That brings me brilliantly on to my next question, which is when it comes to protecting the future of the planet, the clock is really ticking. Mm. Are you hopeful that we'll be able to make the progress needed or are you worried? So it's worth pointing out that Monday, the 3rd of July, was the hottest day in recorded world history right around the world. I am terrified by where we increasingly uh, see ourselves headed. And I wrote my first report on uh, climate change back in 1978. And I thought we'd move much faster than we have done. And it isn't that there haven't been investments and the evolution of new technologies and so on, but the climate crisis is running away with us. We're reaching a set of tipping points where I think we've actually lost it. I think our civilization is at very great risk of coming down. That doesn't mean that I'm not optimistic, but, but the, the point is I was born an optimist, and I don't think you could do what people like us have done if you didn't believe that progress was possible, 
So I'm wired to believe. But if you look at the science and you talk to scientists, and I, 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 about 20 years ago, I went to the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution on, on uh, Cape Cod, and the director took my wife uh, and I around for a full day and, and introduced me to the different climate scientists. And, and having written about climate and having visited climate science research centers for a long time then, I, I, I thought I knew uh, pretty much what was going on. I came out from that visit or set of visits literally with my knees knocking at the scale of what's uh, coming at us. Do politicians understand that? No. Do most CEOs and chief financial officers understand it? They're not even scratching the surface of it properly. They think that if they have uh, you know, an energy efficiency plan or a set of net zero commitments for the 2050s, you know, that's job done. I think their children are already waking up to the fact that this is an existential crisis for, for their futures. And just finally, one of the things I'm just finding routinely now, senior people in business director level saying to me, I'm getting beaten up at the breakfast table by my own children. They're saying, why are you an eco-criminal? Why are you a climate criminal? So I think that cultural response is beginning to happen. And in, in some ways, I think that might be the most powerful driver of all. question is, will it, will it take us far enough and, and, and fast enough in the right direction? Some people say that capitalism and sustainability are incompatible and pull in opposite directions. Oh. What, what do you think? Ah, in principle, yes. Uh, but I, I've often been accused of, of uh, using oxymorons in, in, in my language. And so back in the mid-1980s, I came up with a concept of green consumer, green growth, uh, these sorts of things. And it wasn't that I believed that capitalism and green capitalism, and and, um, now we talk about all sorts of capitalisms, circular, regenerative, you name it. I think it's an unfortunate fact that, as Churchill once said about democracy, he said it was the least bad of all the alternatives. Capitalism, if if you're looking about running economies, is the least worst. But you have to regulate it. It's like a nuclear reaction. Unless you surround it with lead and concrete and electrical systems and water-based cooling systems and the rest of it, you're going to have a real struggle. And it's the same with capitalism. And as we see with the water industry in the UK at the moment, uh, we have not properly regulated it. And so it's, it's, it's running riot. So capitalism, I think, works if... And the problem is that very often we don't understand what that if denotes or implies. How can economic growth be constant when the planet's resources are finite? Well, it's an excellent question. And I think one of the responses to that question now is the degrowth movement. And I think I understand where that's coming from. I think it's an idiocy in some ways, because once you, once you take an entire economy into degrowth, you actually suppress innovation of all sorts. The whole idea of green growth was that you're going to take certain industries and move them towards shutdown, fossil fuels, for example. But I think that it needs government and it needs political action if it's going to work, that sort of managed, steered, strategic approach to growth. And at the moment, we don't have governments that are largely doing what they need to do, with a few exceptions, the biggest of which, which is terrifying Europe, as you know, is the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, where uh, Joe Biden has given an extremely powerful signal to the U.S. economy. Clean, green futures are are, are absolutely the essence of future uh, commercial and economic success. And now people are piling in to invest in those sectors. So I, I think it can be done. 
but it's not yet being done properly by most governments around the world. What do you think the world will be like for our children in a hundred years' time? I don't know, is the simple answer. I mean, I, it will be massively disrupted. I think the, the patience of young people is running out. I think you will start to see people starting to um, take apart elements of the fossil fuels infrastructure. And, and the fossil fuels industry have had plenty of warning. But they continue, like Shell have just done, to say, oh, we continue to invest in renewables and hydrogen and all that good stuff, And but just get out of our way while we do more of this fossil fuel stuff, because that's where the money is. That's what our investors want. It's not what the future will want. And the question is, will those CEOs be arraigned in uh, criminal courts of the future for ecocide and similar types of crimes? I think they should be. And I think they, it'll be a very interesting set of criminal uh, hearings when it happens. I'd love to get your perspective on this. The Just Stop Oil protesters have mm. distilled their strategy into three words, but will it work? I love what they do. Uh, I, when Extinction Rebellion first came up, I wrote a letter to the Times and I got 20 CEOs of, of somewhat mainstream companies, including Unilever, to sign it. And the, 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 the intent was to say, don't dismiss them because they, they, they look peculiar, because this is the leading edge of a generational response to the crises that the baby boomers and those who came before them uh, have created for younger people. The irony was that, that a number of the XR people in France and Germany said, ah, oh, now we're getting into bed with business. That's not what we joined this uh, movement for because it, 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 it is uh, political. But Just Stop Oil, their biggest funder, has gone public with saying he doesn't think the tactics are working. And I don't think they are either. I, I, I really respect the values. I really respect the ambition. I respect the willingness to be arrested and, 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 and so on. But if you're pissing off the average citizen because they're trying to get to hospital with their grandmother and you, you block the road or whatever it happens to be, it's not very effective, I think, politically. Uh, over time. So we're beginning to see a pushback against that, which I think is unfortunate. But we've got to try everything that is at our disposal. And, and Just Up Oil have been doing uh, a very interesting experiment. I'm not entirely sure it's 100% working. When it comes to sustainability, we focus a lot on the global level and the yeah. individual level, but we yeah. sort of seem to miss that bit in between. So what do you think the opportunities are at regional level? I think there are several elements of that in-between stories. One of them is policy, and, and, and it's changes to the legal system, it's changes to economics. And it's really interesting to see a younger generation of largely female economists now coming up who are starting to think very differently to their older male antecedents and competitors still to some uh, degree. So I think there's a lot of stuff that needs doing in that middle ground. And just a final element, I think... There is a cultural dimension to this, which I think will become very much more important. I think that, that the artistic and creative element of this is incredibly important. And, you know, those worlds, you've had individuals who've woken up to all of this, uh, but it's only now you start to see this sort of sea change. And, of course, another area is business school education. Business schools are only just beginning to grasp the fact that this is their future, and if they're not part of it, they're out of it. We always end each episode with a start and stop question. People listening want to be part of the solution when it comes to sustainability and not part of the problem. Yeah. So what is the one thing that they could stop doing and what is their one thing that they could start doing? It depends who they are. If they're working in business and, for example, they're, they're in a senior 
role. And in a way, I think one of the things that people need to stop doing is to assume that we've got time to sort this out. Whoever you talk to in the business world, the investment world, and so on, and, 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 and largely in government as well, they assume that we've got plenty of time. This is a generational challenge. This thing is, is coming at us like uh, gangbusters, and we're not responding in the appropriate way. So I think we've got to realize this is an existential crisis that we're facing, and it's presenting itself now. What should they start doing? I think we have to believe that this is soluble, even if, you know, instinctively I feel at some levels it's not, which is one of the reasons, I think, why you're starting to see very wealthy individuals buying up properties in New Zealand and Patagonia and so on and setting up bunker communities because they know that discontinuity is out there. They sense increasingly that it's coming. They don't want to be caught up in, in the repercussions of what they've all been doing. So I would start believing that it's possible. I, it, it, one, one of the things that lockdowns have done to us all is to sort of freeze us in our homes. And, and, and we slightly got out of the habit of, of, of getting out more. So we need those conversations. But again, maybe some of those conversations will be people with people like us. And I think one of the things I routinely advise people at senior levels in business to do is to get out more. Go and see people who are very much unlike them People are working on real-world solutions to some of these crises and working out how they can best help those people. Just a final, final point. I think the other thing we have to start doing is stop baby boomers. And I'm 74, so I'm very much part of that generation, thinking they've done their bit. No, they haven't. And stop them believing that they can now retire in comfort and leave it to others. I think that's deadly dangerous. And what we've got to start doing is treating this as a pan-generational challenge where we've all got to be part of the responses. And, and we can't simply, as older people, dump it in the laps of younger people. We've got to do this together. And older people tend to have the wealth, they tend to have the experience, they have, tend to have the connections. They still vote in a way that younger people often don't, but they vote increasingly conservative with a small c. So they've got to stop that as well. And they've got to accept that their pensions will have to be, over time, invested in increasingly speculative and risky enterprises because we need to take some very big risks there. So that, that, that's a, a sort of a stop and a sort of start. Slightly mud muddied the waters, but it's a complex world. It was brilliant, John. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been to have you on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, Kate. You. Thank you very much. Thanks to Mike Berners-Lee, Joe Fairley and John Elkington for being our guests on our first Pioneers episode of The 17 Podcast. We'll be back next month with another Pioneers episode featuring green tech expert Dr Alan James and young eco-inventor Shree Hollimer. I'm Kate Hutchinson. Thanks for listening to The 17.